Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Inclusive Educators Podcast, a podcast coming to you by way of the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Teaching and Learning, or the CTL. My name is Dr. Quartes Scott, and I'll be your host. On behalf of our center, we appreciate you all joining us here today. So this technically marks the second episode of the podcast, but the first episode was really an introduction to this series. Today's episode features a special guest here to discuss the recently published book, The New College Classroom, which is co-authored by Drs. Kathy Davidson and Christina Katapotis. Defined in the book, The New College Classroom refers to the methods and missions of inspiring, effective, and inclusive learning in higher education today. This conversation is a great opportunity not only to discuss why effective and inclusive learning strategies matter today, but our listeners are provided practical approaches to teaching. So today's guest is one half of the co-authors of the New College Classroom, Dr. Katapotis. Dr. Katapotis, I will allow you to briefly introduce yourself. Sure, thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely um, to be a part of this. I'm really honored and delighted to be here. Um, I'm Christina Katapotis. I'm the postdoctoral research associate um, at Transformative Learning in the Humanities. It's a three-year initiative at CUNY supported by the Mellon Foundation. You know, I'm glad that you introduced yourself as Christina Katapotis because that's actually one cool thing that I observed while reading your all's book. Uh, you know, the difference between introducing yourself as whether or not you are the professor uh, by your first name or uh, recognizing yourself through your honors. So I'm really glad that you were able to do that. Uh, you two did a great job of providing context as to why instructors vary in how they choose to be addressed. As a Black doctoral degree earner uh, myself, we're amongst the smallest community of doctoral degree earners at this level. So uh, for me, I just prefer for uh, students to address me as such because of the honor of that experience in and of itself, as well as, you know, a little side note, I used to be in the foster care system. And I know um, I had a foster parent who told me literally to my face that I would be deceased or in incarcerated by the time I was 21. So it's a little bit different honor for me to uh, to recognize that because it's more empowering for me, but it's nothing ha has nothing to do with, you know, establishing some type of hierarchy whatsoever. So I do appreciate your all's providing context as to why names matter. So for podcasting purposes, though, we can get, we could just continue as Quartes. <laughs> so uh, please share in your position on naming with our listeners and, and how you all have personally observed the differences in this approach as it relates to the interactions between instructors as well as the uh, students. Um, thanks so much for bringing up this question, um, because when I started out as an adjunct, um, with my fellow grad students, this was like the biggest question is like, oh, geez, what do my students call me? I don't know. I don't want to sound pretentious or stuffy. I also like feel a lot of feelings about authority in the classroom because I'm not quite confident enough yet, you know, like just stepping into the classroom for the first time. Um, so as an adjunct, I went by Christina for various reasons. Um, I didn't have my doctorate. I wasn't a professor. Um, I had been teaching in the South where um, the tendency was to call you Mrs. And I was like deeply offended because I wasn't married. Um, and so I wanted to avoid that entirely. Um, but now I'd probably go by Dr. Katapotis or Dr. K um, because it honors the work my students have done to get to college and it honors the accomplishment of my BIPOC colleagues, as you mentioned, 
um, who have earned their PhDs. And that's huge. Um, I mean, white students are twice as likely to question the authority of faculty of color. And if I go by Christina as a white person, that invites students to say, hey, why is Christina so laid back when you're not? Or something like that. That's not cool, right? Um, so earning a doctorate is a big deal. Only 3% of the world achieves that highest level of education. And so own it and be a good ally and practice, you know, for me um, as a white person by honoring the work of my students that they did to get to college, to be taught by a doctor and the work that you and your colleagues did to get that PhD. Um, and, you know, I feel like if people are worried about sounding stuffy or pretentious, then don't act stuffy and pretentious, you know? Um, it doesn't give you license to be a jerk, just honor the work and the accomplishment. Um, and a lot of my feelings changed. Um, I'm a huge fan of Shavella Pittman. Are you familiar with her work? Oh, you got to check this out. So um, I'm going to cite her and um, Tom Tobin wrote this article for Chronicle of Higher Ed. And it came out after like the page proofs of our book. And so we weren't able to bring it into the book. Um, but they taught, it's this article called um, Academe has a lot to learn about how inclusive teaching affects instructors. And that's, you know, what it boiled down to was Tom Tobin was like, I was going by Tom until talking with my amazing colleague, Shavella Pittman, about how that affects faculty of color. Um, and so I've really changed, like, how I feel about um, what students should call me, but Dr. Katapotis is a mouthful, so Dr. K would be fine. I really appreciate you, um, you know, going further into that as well. You know, I also, my undergrad was at a, uh, it was at a Quaker institution. I don't know if you're very familiar with Quakers, but yeah, they're very much on, a, you know, looking at everyone as equals and not mm -hmm. putting labels on anything. You know, I was at an institution where the president just, you know, just called him by his first name. <laughs> So it was really interesting, um, you know, being in that in that setting. And then, of course, you know, you earn the degree. And, you know, I think I can say this here, but, you know, at the University of Colorado, most folks are pretty much on a first name basis. So it was mm. interesting to make that shift from you finish your doctorate degree, uh, particularly as a as a black male. And then now you go to a setting in which most folks operate on, <laughs> on a first. Name yeah. Basis. Yeah. So, you know, I. It, you know, at first I was explaining myself as to why I was going by, you know, Dr. or Dr. Scott, or why I'm choosing now to go by Dr. Scott, and then relearning that you also don't have to explain yourself as to why you go yeah. by that as well. Because, you know, once you get that degree, they tell you you're entitled to all the rights and privileges that are, that are mm -hmm. associated with that. And one of those is by your honors, right? So, yeah, yeah, and no, I, I appreciate all of that. So let's shift gears a bit and, you know, getting to know you. Instructors find their way to teaching in, edu in higher education, particularly in various different ways. Prior to enrolling in my doctorate degree, I had zero aspirations <laughs> of teaching in college, but a lot of that has since changed, a lot of it having to do with my experiences of learning and, you know, those interactions with my instructors themselves. Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey to college teaching and, and how that inspires the work that you're doing now. I have, I would love to tell um about my journey to teaching but I'm just curious um could you just say more about that like your that you had zero aspirations and like just talking with you I know that you're a very thoughtful educator so I'm just curious like you know if you don't mind telling me a little bit more about you too 
Okay, going off script. I appreciate it. No, <laughs> <laughs> no okay. So, uh, I'll, uh, okay, we have to go back to, uh, of course, I was in the foster care system, right? And, yeah. Um, it, I barely graduated. Like, I, when I tell you I barely graduated from high school, I didn't know that I was graduating from high school until the very last period where the, the instructor or the teacher came in and told me that I, I had to pass this final test for this book. And to be honest with you, she never even showed me what the grade was. She just said that I passed. Mm. So at this point, honestly, I'm like, I don't think I passed, but I think she just let me, I think she just let me go. So, you know, I ended up getting to college and, you know, my GPA wasn't the greatest getting in. So I really struggled a lot. And a lot of that had to do with my preparation, getting in like all that predated, you know, college and all, all of those lived experiences. So I was really starting behind the eight ball, if you will, as, when it relates to being prepared for college work. But as we yeah. found, you know, being prepared for college work doesn't necessarily mean that you won't be able to meet the standards or the expectations of college level work. So I was able to, you know, uh, have somewhat of a of a decent, you know, experience academically uh, at the undergraduate level. But then once I got into my master's program, again, I wasn't even looking to go into a master's program, but then I was working and I wasn't enjoying the work that I was doing. And then the person I adopted as my mom, so she, she's actually the vice president of my former institution uh, of student affairs, but she stated, hey, you had so you enjoyed being a student so much. Why don't you go into school to work with students? So I had no idea that student affairs was a profession in and of itself. So I ended up applying to schools, ended up getting into Eastern Michigan University and love the experience of like, I mean, I went from having, I graduated undergrad with a subpar 2.6 GPA to then graduating at the master's level with a 3.8 something GPA. Mm -hmm. And then started working for a couple of years, but then I had a, people in my personal life that were awesome and were really great mentors and folks that are also starting to get older. And I wanted them to see me ultimately achieve that last degree. Mm. So I started applying to programs and then started, you know, I got into the University of Toledo. And when I tell you, so the first assignment that I ever had was we had to read a book. Uh, it was called like Books of the Century in this particular class. And we had to do a presentation on the book. And I bombed it. Like I was, I was a full-time doctoral student and everything was so overwhelming. And then of course, you know, trying to balance your personal life your work life as well. It was just all too much. And I remember like I embarrassed myself in this first um, exercise, essentially just going up and then talking about the book that you read and then, you know, providing a, 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 you know, a summary of it, a yeah. summary of it. So after that, and I bombed and I embarrassed myself in front of the, all of the class, I promised myself that I would never embarrass myself nor waste my, my peers' time again. Mm. embarrassing piece about it was that you have a whole class full of people that are watching you and they've never many of them haven't read this book yeah so you have a responsibility to your peers to teach them or at least get them interested in reading that book yeah so it was embarrassing on multiple fronts that i wasn't able to do that so for the rest of the time you know i, I went up to that professor at the end of that class and his name is dr janik and i want to shout him out because this moment really changed my life as it relates to being a student I came to him at the end of that class and then I said, hey, I'm so sorry that I that I did that. It was very obvious. Like, I'm not going to BS and say that I, that I read the book. It was embarrassing. Is it OK for me to just read another book and then do another one? Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'll still take whatever grade for the first one, but I just want a, a chance to make up for that. 
And his response was really powerful. He said, it happens. <laughs> ah, yeah. yeah. He said, it just happens. He didn't look at me any less. He didn't yep. look at me. He just said that it happened. So for the rest of that time, you know, he just said, just, just focus on moving forward and being a better student. Mm. So having that relationship with him, and I dedicated the rest of my time, like when, when it came to reading, you know, my peers, and I can say this, you know, um, <laughs> uh, positively, uh, that a lot of my peers would agree that I was always on top of all the readings. Uh, and even that same professor, it's funny, because I was just talking about this the other day. He came to me at the uh, end of my uh, academics. We were in a class and we're going through another uh, books of the century type of situation. And other peers were talking about the books that they were reading. So I'm having a conversation with them about what they were reading. And then I was tying that into what I had read and then some other books from like other mm -hmm. classes. And he came to me and at the end of it and he said, he said, I don't mean to sound paternalistic or anything. He said, but do you realize like where you were just <laughs> to where you struggle with that first assignment? And then now you're citing four or five authors off the top of your head, you know, like in, in conversation, almost as if it's nothing. He's like, you know, that's that's pretty badass. So, you know, but and a lot of that I owe to him, but I also owe that a lot of that to myself as well. You know, I want to give him credit, but I also want to acknowledge that a lot of those things were internal as well, because it does take people who do see those things inside of you. And then with that, being able to, to just enjoy the process of learning and being able to apply those things to your own personal life and the things that you see, as well as being able to connect those to the works of other folks as well. So it's something that I really enjoy uh, because it does help me to see the world differently. And it helps me to see how other people see the world differently as well. Yeah. I'm so glad that I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> your answer is so beautiful and like it's so moving and just like thinking about that journey and the people along the way who do, who have to make a call right am I going to be the gatekeeper am I going to stop you yeah. from being able to advance or am I going to help you and give you the leg up you need you know what I mean like that's everything. I my I had like such a silly answer in comparison. I want to tell a completely different story now. Um, so I grew up in uh, for the first five years of my life, we lived in Miami and Kendall um, before Hurricane Andrew completely destroyed the city. Um, we got my mom and I moved um, out like just a couple weeks before the hurricane hit. And um I grew up learning English and Spanish at the same time. And so I was really behind in, um, as we know, like people who grow up bilingual are, um, uh, you know, it takes a little bit longer with reading and comprehension, but if you stick with it, then you catch up. Um, unfortunately, I completely lost my Spanish and I had to like come back to it later in high school and, um, and I minored in Spanish in, in college. Um, but I was always really behind in reading and comprehension. And so long story short, I got to high school and somehow because of goosebumps and Agatha Christie, I made it into English honors, which was just a shock to everyone in my family. I'd done hooked on phonics. I'd worked really hard and I still didn't really understand what was going on in some of the books we read in my freshman year. And Mr. Duffy at Manchester High School West in Manchester, New Hampshire, um, 
was teaching that honors English course and it was quite a character, very intimidating. Every time I raised my hand to speak in that class, I turned bright red. Um, and I bombed the final. I'd done okay, like, but I bombed it. I really, really bombed it. Um, and it was so bad that it was a point where I didn't know if I was going to continue in honors English to the next year. And that, like, if you don't continue, then like, you don't, you're not on that track, right? Either you're on that track or like, or you fall off the track. And um, so anyway, I got, you know, called to Mr. Duffy's office and he was like, what happened? And I remember feeling like I was going to cry and just all I could say was, I don't know. Um, now, looking back on that time, my mom was about to go through a divorce. My dad would also go through a divorce um, soon after. So I'm in these um, households pre-divorce with that coming. Um, and I have all of this like child childhood and intergenerational trauma accumulated that I was at this like kind of mental breaking point in my freshman year of high school where um, I was completely saturated with the stress and just wanted to give up being a good student and like just just didn't have the energy for it and I was just taking these long walks by myself in the woods like totally traumatized and like you know and all I could say like I didn't have the words I didn't know what to say I didn't know why I didn't do well all I could say was I don't know <laughs> and I don't know what happened but I still stayed in the honors track for my sophomore year and I like barely held it together for the rest of my time in, in high school and in college. Um, and if you had told my mom that I was going to become a PhD in English, she would have laughed, you know. Um, but it's that person who decided not to be a gatekeeper and to just trust that something was happening in this person's life and they deserved another chance. Um, and so as a teacher, when students come to me and they're the students have talked to me about their self-loathing, about depression and other faculty just not understanding. And I'm such a massive, mass massive mental health advocate. And I'm just like, you don't need to tell me why. Like, I don't care about why. I care about what I can do to help you. You know, you don't have to tell me why. You don't have to give me a doctor's note. Maybe you don't have health insurance. You know, maybe you don't have health insurance to get a doctor's note. So you don't have to tell me why. Um, and yeah, that's a little bit far away from, you know, how what inspired me to become a teacher. Um, I, I can just say that um, very quickly that my aspiration for for this book um, is what I had wished I had when I started 10 years ago as an adjunct. Um, I had no training. I got thrown into the deep end with like just a workshop, um, which was hardly enough. Um, uh, totally not prepared. Um, and, you know, there's something in it if you've been teaching for decades. And if you've never taught a class before, 
it has the foundations of what you need to get started with good pedagogy. And my aspiration for this book is that it can help adjuncts and grad students who don't have a lot of time and who need a quick download on good teaching practices. Um, you know, whether you have ample time to prepare for a class or just a subway ride. Well, let me backtrack and say that I'm also glad that you shared. <laughs> you shared. I mean, it's so, you know, so we do this, I do this presentation um, for many of our instructors who are trying to get more, more familiar with uh, inclusive, inclusive teaching practices. And I will say, and this is like, I'm not lying about this. I tell everyone, because we have this program called the Just and Equitable Teaching Program. It's a micro-credential. Um, but I've also advocated to my supervisor that the new college classroom should be something that all instructors coming into the field should really have. Uh, not just have it, but to really read that because it really does provide even some historical context around, you know, just how archaic a lot of our practices are from a teaching standpoint. But then to, you know, just really getting to know who our students are. Um, yeah. But going back to like, you know, some of the things that you stated, one of the things I talk about in that presentation that we do, uh, you know, what inclusive instructors are doing um, is acknowledging part of, you know, just, it's not important. To, it's not as, it's not just important to focus on helping students to get through classes or whatever, but really understanding the social and individual impact that it has, education has on all of our students. And you just named some of that, you know, from a gatekeeper standpoint, you're either, and that's one of the things we talk about, Recognizing that we as instructors are either, uh, you know, keep, you know, we're either creating barriers or we're creating opportunities for students to flourish. And all of our practices really build up, you know, to helping students either to achieve or we're contributing or perpetuating these cycles of students, particularly students from equity seeking groups, not being able to flourish or really, you know, see, you know, all that they can actually, you know, accomplish in education. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the individuals that are were also a part of your experience that helped you get here as well. Because you know, part of it is because we're here having this conversation. Mm. But two, it's also helpful for those who are listening into the conversation to also, you know, be reminded of it's not just the intellectual or the academic impact that you have on students, but it's the social and emotional impact that we have on students as well. So I appreciate that. I agree. So I noticed that in the definition of the new college classroom, you all state that the that the process that the process of the new college classroom refers to the methods and missions of inspiring effective and inclusive learning. So emphasizing a little bit about inclusive learning rather than inclusive teaching is what stood out to me. Was this something that was intentional to emphasize by you and Dr. Davidson? Or, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about why you all focused on inclusive learning? Yeah, that's a great question. And I have no doubt it was intentional at the time. Um, I'm trying to remember the context. Um, we talk about both inclusive teaching and inclusive learning. I think that the latter really breaks down the teacher-student hierarchy, like the I slash expert teaches the you slash learner. Um, when we talk about inclusive learning, it's really about inviting everyone into the learning process to be a co-learner and dissolving the hierarchy in the classroom. So everyone is an agent of their own education and a member of a larger learning community. 
Um, we can unmask the barriers to education, such as racial, gender, class, and ableist biases to think about everyone as a learner. Um, and not just like, it really bothered me when I was a student and in college and a teacher would say, I'm going to learn with you, but not like intentionally, you know what I mean? Like kind of as in like a, almost in a, it, there was one class in particular where that almost felt a bit patronizing um, as a learner. Like it's an honor to be learning together, you know, it's a real honor. So Teaching kind of implies that there's one expert instructing another, um, which is dictatorial um, and inclusive learning to me means everyone has expertise and valuable contributions to give yeah. and to receive. Um, but I also don't want to get too hung up on language. Like I'm not trying to start a revolution by saying learning, not teaching is the focus. Um, like we sometimes get caught up in new words for things and then they lose their meaning. So what we're really, Kathy and I are really trying to advocate in the book is for anti-racist action in the classroom um, going beyond inclusivity. Um, I think about diverse, diversity and inclusiveness through Angela Davis's talk. It's from um, 2014. It's a speech she gave at Medgar Evers College about Audre Lorde, um, where she says, in summary, um, I'm paraphrasing, um, diversity is a word that has colonized everything else, taking on the meaning of like incorporating different looking people into a system that remains the same. And that's a problem. So what we do in the book is offer ways to change the system, to structure equity into the operating model of a course, how we run classes to achieve 100% participation, not just the voices of the hand-raising few who are most likely to mirror the identities of their professors in a majority white profession. Um, so ideally, students have a say in the curriculum and in their own education-based, uh, in their own um, evaluation as well. I'm a huge fan of student-driven assessment um, and on the learning goals that they determine for themselves too. Um, there's this one, um, person who teaches at um, Michael Greer, who teaches at CUNY, and she has students write um, a letter to her at the beginning of the semester um, on their learning goals. And then at the end, they reflect back on that letter and evaluate how close they came to meeting those goals. And that's 10% of their final grade. And I, I love that um, self-evaluation. So to me, dissolving hierarchy in the classroom means doing away with that banking model of education that Paulo Freire talks about in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, that knowledge is deposited in a learner's brain for later use. That's passive learning, right? If we dissolve that hierarchy, reduce the teacher's authoritarian power in order to empower students as self-directed learners and give all of them more autonomy and agency, we're preparing them for the world beyond graduation. We're also boosting student success. We know that talk time in class correlates with student success. So it's really important to get all of those students talking. There's this one study we found, um, I think it was 89, we talk 89% of class time, even in discussion-based classes, right? Sorry, I'm just getting over a cold for my toddler. Uh, <laughs> so that 11%, is a small slice of class time, right? And if you have a small seminar, okay, maybe most people talk, but in a large lecture class, like almost no one's talking. 
unless they're called on. And that's not okay. So that's not teaching them how to ask for a raise, how to advocate for themselves in the world, how to be active, participating citizens in the world. And and when we do that 100% participation through inventory methods like think, pair, share, entry and exit tickets, we're modeling for them what an egalitarian society could look, feel and sound like so they can have that vision for the world after graduation and change it. My doctorate degree is uh, in the foundations of education, <laughs> which 100% is you know reflective of how we are democratizing uh, education, but then also too how we're helping students and preparing students to be, you know, democratic contributing members of society. So I really love, you know, all of that. I also love that piece that you just, you briefly mentioned about, you know, students reflecting on what they learned in class. And then at the end of that, you know, how close they got to that. Because I also think that, and first off, I'm going to also incorporate that. (laughs) I also think that 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 challenges us as well as educators, because it's not just all on the students, right, in terms of how close they get to that. but how we as instructors create opportunities for students to learn the things that they want to learn. So uh, I love that. And it it helps, it does put a a piece of that responsibility on us as instructors as well. So as an educational historian myself, I love the first chapter of the book, briefly introducing where college teaching started. So you and Dr. Davidson stated that for change in classrooms to happen, we need to look inwards at ourselves and backwards to understand how we got here. In your research on the history of college teaching, what are some sobering realizations you have come across and how do you see these issues and challenges in today's college classrooms? So one of my favorite factoids that I learned from working with Kathy, who talks more about the history of higher ed and the racist, gendered, classist biases we inherited from the 19th century in her book, The New Education, which came before the new college classroom that we wrote together, is Um, My favorite factoid is about pig iron. (laughs) Um, Pig iron didn't make the final cut in the book. Um, We cut the manuscript by 30,000 words in the end. So if you'll allow me to indulge in his story, I'd love to tell it here. Um, In 1906, the era of Taylorism and scientific labor management, there were formulas for how much workers could do in an hour, literally how many wheelbarrows of pig iron a laborer should carry across the shop floor in how much time. Um, And the Carnegie credit hour, um, which is about like seat time, right? How much time students spend in seats in a classroom was invented um, again, like literally this is the case to translate scientific labor management to higher ed. So from shop floor to classroom, Objective was uniformity, not understanding, right? Um, Not insight, not even learning. So our overstuffed syllabi are a legacy from this time. Um, If we're going to move past that joyless inheritance, um, we need to be reflective about what we hope to accomplish by assigning excessive amounts of work. So a student won't be able to read Thomas Piketty's 800 or so page capital in a week. Um, They might be able to read the Insta read summary or cliff notes or spark notes um, that clocks in at like 30 or 20 pages or whatever, or the Wikipedia entry or a 500 word 
crib sheet created by another student available online for a price, right? But is that what we're aiming for? Um, given the realities of our students' lives, what you and I have talked about already, it, it's time to admit that when we overassign, we're really rewarding skimming and the quick summary and cheating. And is that rigor? You know, um, today's college students have been subjected to a lifetime of alienated, pra alienating practices um, that are masked as measures of success or rigor. Um, or accountability, you know, like for me as a reader struggling with comprehension, having to read a really enormous book wasn't going to help me with my reading comprehension. Um, I wasn't doing well until I discovered spark notes and cliff notes to like, okay, what the heck is going on in this book? Oh, now that I understand, I can go and read and do the close reading and critical thinking, but like, I couldn't even get through that first step because I was just struggling to read every word. I wasn't reading smarter. I was just reading all of it. And I thought that that was the way until I learned better. Um, so this goes back to Taylorism and the industrial origins of the modern research university, um, measuring student outputs and outcomes as if they were wheelbarrows of pig iron. Um, rather than assign students um, pig iron, <laughs> we could give them inspiring an inspiring syllabus with attainable learning goals um, or their own learning goals that are additive to the, you know, the required departmental ones. Um, the heavy lifting, so to speak, um, is in the critical and creative thinking, um, the problem solving we're asking students to do, what society will ask them to do after graduation, even with the rules and regulations that, you know, in the most limiting um, situations where like a whole syllabus might be determined or a textbook might be determined by a department, we can still find room for choice. Um, and that's what active learning does. It gives students agency and choice. Um, so yeah, that's one of my favorite facts from working with Kathy that didn't make it into the book. Yeah, no, that's um, and that's really important too because this is actually going to this actually segues a bit into the next question. You know, talking about mental health of our students because of course the work that students are assigned surely contributes to their mental health. So you know, in in the book, you all address that the COVID nineteen pandemic really shifted the learning landscapes across all of education. At the college level, many of even the best instructors struggle to meet the needs of today's college students because they have either minimally taught online or had never done it before. So there was a great quote from the book in which you all stated that online and on-site matter less than creating an equitable community where students recognize themselves and one another. There's the reminder that equity is created as well as equity needs to be created in online learning spaces. So what are some of the themes that you have identified with inequities in remote learning spaces? And then how can instructors be creative in the ways that they address these issues? First, I want to cite Bettina Love, um, who in a recent talk um, she gave at CUNY um, said, that she asks her students for consent to teach certain things. And um, she commits to not showing black death um, and her students commit to that as well. Um, I think we need to 
think carefully about what we assign in the first part of your question. Um, be, you know, I ended up teaching um, Octavia Butler's The Parable of the Sower in fall 2020, and it was both too soon because we were all so traumatized. Um, it's a novel about an apocalypse. Um, and uh, it felt right to teach it during the pandemic. Um, and it was also too soon because we were so um, numb by then. Um, so I think, you know, asking students first, are you okay? You know, how are you doing? Doing wellness checks at the beginning of class. Um, some professors have done this where they also make it fun, um, like a musical jam session or starting with a song and a dance party or a yoga practice or like a breathing exercise um, to help students become present because Bell Hooks says in Teaching to Tranquil, transgress that we really need to feel safe and that we can trust um, each other and ourselves and our, our teachers um, and to feel a sense of belonging before deep and meaningful learning can happen. And our brains need that. Like we can't learn something new when we are stressed out about so many other things in our lives, food and housing insecurity, jobs, other obligations, elder care, you know, kids, many of the things that our students um, have in their lives outside of class. And so those wellness checks at the beginning of class really help you to get a temperature check on how things are going and to understand what students are struggling with most. Um, also, in response to another part of your question, I think Audre Lorde said it best, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it's self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. Um, so I feel this question very deeply as an adjunct. I've moonlit at different campuses, sometimes commuting between schools in different states on the same day while trying to write a dissertation and work a part-time job to put food on my table. Um, and mostly eating cans of beans, um, you know, to make it work in New York. Um, and so, you know, like I said, avoiding overassigning um, is care both for yourself and your students. Um, we know that from ample research that peer learning boosts students' performance and confidence and it improves higher order understanding. So I love team teaching. Um, I organize my students into teams, static groups that remain the same throughout the semester rather than randomized groups. Um, and uh, that way they can mentor each other, support each other, check in about assignments and go to each other for questions before they come to you. Um, and, you know, teams prepare students for the workforce. I, in every job I've ever had, I am collaborating on teams, so it prepares them for, for the world. It's not just busy work, and you have to explain that to students like, okay, I understand that this is difficult, but also this is like life. This is what's going to be happening for the rest of your life. So like learning these skills now where the stakes are pretty low at the end of the semester, you never have to see these people again if you don't want to. It's different than, you know, working for someone who's difficult and then having to switch a job you know, that the stakes are much higher in a job. Um, the best example from the pandemic um, in team teaching, I think, is Leah um, Friedman's team teaching at uh, Queensborough, uh, sorry, 
Leah Friedman, um, who does team teaching at Kingsborough Community College. Um, she, you know, says you know, teams build safety and trust over the semester and they connect via chats or like a Slack channel um, so they can answer uh, questions, clarify assignments, check in outside of class with one another. And she assigns rotating team leaders who are required to encourage bonding outside of class um, and um, to check in and reach out to any team member who goes to class or, is, or seems to be floundering. And when a student doesn't pull their weight, she gives extra credit to those students who pull up their sleeves um, to reach out and try to help their fellow teammates either catch up on work they miss or to come out of their shell if they're quiet. Um, and I love that. I think team teaching is really effective. And um, I also advocate for mentoring students in group student office hours where students all show up, they can ask you anything about a class or about the hidden curriculum of the academy. Um, and they learn from each other and you don't repeat as much of the same advice. Um, and sometimes lessons are learned better when learned from peers or something that you're saying to one of their peers than if you were giving them advice directly. Sometimes it's easier if it's about someone else. Um, so I, those are some ways where I think self-care become student care um, as well. And I think all of that is important on site and online. And we learned a lot from the pandemic um, from that. All of that is so great. And those are those are some of the things that I've also been planning to incorporate in what I'll be teaching this next semester. So I'm teaching at another institution, but it's diversity, equity, and inclusion, diversity, equity, inclusion, and culture and leadership. So in each of the modules, because I've breaking down the class into modules um, of, you know, because a lot of students don't necessarily know the differences between diversity and equity. <laughs> mm -hmm. To conflate them a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Breaking it down to what diversity in leadership looks like, what equity in leadership looks like, what inclusivity in leadership looks like, and then what culture in leadership also looks like as well. But at the end of all of these modules, there is essentially a case study. And it's rotating as well, you know, because I appreciated that so much from you all too reading that book in terms of, you know, rotating, you know, whose roles are what, and then being able to define <laughs> what the, what those roles are, and then having them to also be able to meet. Um, even with, you know, the class time we meet once a week, we're scheduled to meet once a week for about two hours and 40 minutes. We know that students don't have the mental capacity to sit there for two hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But even just taking, you know, some of that time and then having them meet in groups outside of class. Because, you know, learning time, I mean, it's all learning time. That's how I'm looking at it. So, mm -hmm. you know, whether or not it's in the physical, quote unquote, learning space or the, the learning space that's been assigned or the one that we just designed, right? you know, building in that time for them to work and meet in teams to, again, you know, emphasize the point that you made that they can talk to each other about some of those challenges, but then also, you know, leaving time to also connect with me if there are some things that they all have questions about if it hasn't been made clear to them through themselves then clearly that's on me right <laughs> so, so yeah. how, do, how do we then you know clear, uh, clear those things up and build and and you know move forward in ways to where we can um you know come across those issues less frequently because you all talked to talk to, as well about you know lesson planning mm -hmm. you know, um as someone who studied you know the foundations of education you know a lot of that has to do with k-12 teaching and lesson planning is so common at the K-12 level, 
Um, but I'm not necessarily sure if there's a lot of that that goes into practice in terms of, you know, at the collegiate level. So mm-hmm. I think that we're incorporating, or at least through my position, um, <clears throat> these lesson plans for instructors. Because the thing as well is that many of the folks who teach, at least at our university, are also being taught by TAs. So part of the lesson planning is looking at, you know, what today's focus is on, what the learning objectives are, how those learning objectives for that meeting are connecting to the larger learning objectives of the class, and how it's connecting to anything that the students inside of the class have any general interest in, as well as reflecting on what went well, what did not, and then building that into if how that course is going to be delivered moving forward. Because of course, you know, not everyone is going to teach that class, or not all the t- the TAs may not be there anymore. Right, right. You have different folks coming in, so you can even have that conversation with them, especially as a faculty mentor, to say, "Hey, this class was taught this way last year. The person who taught it; these are the things that went really well. These are the things that they were challenged with. So, you know, like let's let's do some work around that." <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I really love you know uh, all of that. So, you know, going back to that quote that I recited earlier uh, about online and on-site mattering less than creating equity, you and Dr. Davidson also note that it's important for students to have familiarity with one another in terms of their relationship. They need to have relationships with each other. Why is interpersonal relationship development among students so important to not only online learning spaces, but to the learning process today? I, you know, for me, there's so much. Um, I mean, our brains need that. Um, We can't, you know, I think it's so important that um, we recognize the decades of research on the efficacy of peer-to-peer learning, that you're more likely to learn something from a peer than you are um, from your instructor and also from um, the metacognitive reflection at the end of a lesson. Um, And um, there was a study in uh, 2014 of 225 studies. So it was a meta study of the studies on active learning that basically showed that students in a traditional lecturing situation were 1.5 times more likely to fail than in an active learning, in a class where active learning methods were used. And then in a follow-up study, um, that was even more the case if diversity, equity, inclusion, um, international students, um, like in those factors were um, taken in. And they said um, that if this had been a pharmaceutical, study that traditional learning would be taken off the market. Um, And I think that, you know, students need a little bit of guidance to trust that they can learn from their peers. Um, They often don't recognize that active learning is more rigorous than a traditional learning situation. There was another study um, done where um, unless you explain the efficacy of active learning and peer-to-peer learning to students, they don't realize how much they're learning and how these are life skills that are essential to their future employment, like learning communication, collaboration, entrepreneurial skills, leadership skills. These are things that employers look for. And so it's important to explain that to students. Um, But I think that interpersonal relationship 
in the classroom really connects the learning to students' lives, right? That it is something that they'll use in their careers, but also in their lives. Um, focusing on being a good listener, being a good contributor, um, and learning that participation could be done in many different ways. It doesn't have to be talking. You could be contributing to collaborative notes in a collaborative notes doc in Google or supporting a student who seems to be struggling, checking in and asking how they're doing. Um, that kind of investment is so important. And um, I think our brains need that, um, that uh, we also need that support, um, going back to bell hooks, um, that it really is learning through community. Um, and, you know, there are various ways to build that um, and to connect that learning to something personally meaningful. So, for example, in courses I've taught in the English department at Hunter College, I've asked my students to vote on a text to read for class rather than me choosing the text in advance. I leave these days or weeks blank on my syllabus um, so that they don't even have the power of suggestion, which can make students uncomfortable. Um, because it's like, no, you're the expert. Tell me what to read. And I'm like, no, really? write 300 words on what you think we should read um, on those blank days. And I say, what would you like to read with me as your instructor? Don't propose something that you could easily read on your own over the summer. What do you want to read with me um, to guide you to understand what's at stake in this text? And they propose some pretty hard books to read. It's That's rigor. Rigor is built in, you know. Um, and they choose it out of their own curiosity and interest and investment in learning. And then we develop criteria for voting on the proposals as a class, determine in small groups what the class values are, uh, what the class values most. Um, and before we vote on the proposals, we settle on that criteria by consensus. Um, and so the idea originates from the students. It's judged by the students in small groups as a larger community and by individual voting. Um, and you can do that online with one text um, in a writing or literature course, or you could do it in STEM, just ask students what problem in the world they are curious about most and want to explore using the methods and skills of the discipline. And you could give them some real world examples to choose from if they don't have any ideas. But there are lots of problems out there that um, we're all invested in solving. So it's, you know, you could do it in any class. Nice. So all of this has been really great. And I appreciate it so much because, you know, it, it really, I asked this question, you know, facilitating a presentation a, a, about a couple months ago with some faculty. And one of the questions is, you know, why is inclusive, like, why does it matter to be inclusive as an instructor? And one of the responses from one of the faculty members is because, it's fun. And listening to you, you know, talking and introducing so many things, even that with what you do, you know, like I want to learn with you all. What are some things that you all can suggest? I see those things as fun. You know, yeah. sometimes you, you can hear um, individuals look at it as additional work. Mm -hmm. um, but really, it's, you know, like, how can we how can we make connections with students and really get them invested inside of this? learning process as well as getting you uh, from what I'm what I'm hearing in this conversation getting you as the instructor invested in their learning process as well so I think all of those things are really great so the last question I have for you 
because I definitely want to know myself personally, but what are some other projects that you're working on now? And are there any other uh, areas of inclusive teaching that you feel are understudied? Mm. Um, really briefly, um, I'm, well, I guess I'm working on two things. One um, is on teaching and the other work that I do as a 19th century Americanist Um I would love to talk to you another time about this work I'm doing on Staten Island and black oysters and sailors um, in this free black community, Sandy Ground. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. This community is so beautiful um, and it's understudied um, often Weeksville um, in Brooklyn or, um, you know, other communities get studied more often than uh, the one on, St on Staten Island. Um, but um, in terms of pedagogy, I'm working right now on a co-authored piece with Josephine Zebel, who um, does work with um, incarcerated people um, and soundscapes. And we are working on carceral soundscapes in um, prisons and um, in schools um, and how student sounds are regulated in schools and um, how that in many ways mirrors like the carceral soundscape of a prison. So I'm really interested in education in prisons um, and um, how, what we could do in higher ed to fight mass incarceration. Um, and um, I think, you know, for anyone who's interested in that topic, reading Halfway Home by Ruben Jonathan Miller, um, it's a beautiful book. He just won a MacArthur Genius. Um, this year and uh it's a it's a really powerful book um that i highly recommend so it's yeah. so good um and gets to the heart of everything now i'm definitely going to check that out as well as you know i also love that you brought up you know like the you know education in in, in prison as well um there's some there's definitely some um you know some research and some work out there but definitely not enough yeah, uh, and I've, I've found that through some of the work that I do as well. So that's another understudied area that I think definitely, and I agree, garners a lot, should garner a lot more attention. Well, Dr. K, <laughs> not, not, not the soda, right? <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. I, have, I, I was inspired from the, from the first question. Um, you know, I really appreciate you turning that back on me. Um, you know, you know, my, path getting into college teaching, but then also, you know, introducing us to yours and then connecting that to a lot more of the work that you do, because I think that that's such a really great example of what that can even look like inside of learning spaces. You know, when we humanize ourselves, it really allows for the learners inside of that space, we're all learners, but it allows for all of us inside of that space uh, to see each other, you know, more humanistically and not just from a student to learner perspective. So. I really do appreciate that. And to our listeners out there, uh, modeling inclusivity myself, if there are any topics of conversation that you all would like uh, to have posed on our podcast, please feel free to send me an email about those, whether or not you are a part of the CU system or not. Uh, but my email address is quatez.scott at colorado.edu. So that's essentially quatez.scott at colorado.edu. And if you have any thoughts, suggestions, recommendations, or anything else on how we can improve your experience as a listener, please feel free to send me those as well. 
again, thank you all very much. Uh, I was joined here today with Dr. Katapodif, who is one of the co-authors of the new college classroom. And so forward looking to our relationship going forward. I'm pretty sure we'll have a relationship beyond this podcast. Yes, <laughs> thank you those. so much. It was such a joy to be in conversation with you. Yeah, for, for sure. And all of the work that you're going to continue to do. Thank you so much. And you take, don't actually log off. <laughs> 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 and, and you take care.